Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of April 2021. It is quite a difference in weather since the last time I was on two weeks ago. On Friday the 16th of April, we finally hit 50 degrees for the very first time this year. It was the first time since early last December. That tied for the latest first 50 degree day of the year at the airport. Just two days later, it hit 67, and that turned out to be the third earliest date that the airport surpassed 65. So it was like a switch flipped, and we went from a chilly conditions to a remarkable stretch of warm and sunny weather, which is still ongoing, although the forecast for this week is for rain to return. As a result of some of this warm weather, a lot of spring-like things have been happening. The plants have really gotten going with many flowers out there, and especially on the shrubs, but also some of the herbaceous plants starting to come up and grow quite quickly with some of the flowers showing up there. Also, the birds are moving through, seeing some shorebirds starting to trickle in, waterfowl moving over, and the songbirds, warblers, hermit thrush, other songbirds have been showing up as well, and I'm sure there'll be many more to come. If you're getting out and seeing some of the spring-like things out there, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. If you're particularly interested in birds, you can join the Sitka Birds Facebook group, and people have been posting some of their sightings there. You can also get on an email list, the Sitka Birds email list, by visiting sitkanature.org, and there is a link to sign up there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded earlier this month with Zach LaPerriere. He's a local outdoors person and woodworker who's been previously a guest on the show. I last spoke with him last year, and we'll go ahead and join the conversation with him telling me a little bit about some of the things that he's been up to over the past year. Got out on the boat a few times. That's always fun. Um, And for some of the good weather, too. Uh, Maybe one of the highlights was watching orcas feed in the current at Salisbury Sound around the 1st of February. Oh, this year? That was amazing. Yeah, there were, the current was, I think, six knots. There was a family up there, and they were feeding for a couple of hours at sunset. It was just unbelievable. And the current was nothing for them. It was kind of like a slow treadmill, it seemed. And Hmm. they were just working back and forth. Uh, it was just amazing to watch. That was what, really fun. What were they, were they eating fish? Or? I assume they were at some distance and we mm-hmm. couldn't really see through the binoculars. Yeah. They were more, we were uh, anchored in uh, Baby Bear Bay and they were kind of a little, they, they kind of came up toward us, but they were more toward the other side. No, oh, so in the kind of the, the stretch of there where the current really runs through. Oh yeah. I mean, the current was literally running six knots. They were working their way all the way down almost into surges and then they'd work their way back up and then back down hmm. uh, including a young one interesting so yeah. i mean was it was like three or four of them or uh, i'd say a few more uh of course there was one big male judging by its dorsal fin and one or two i think there were two young or two smaller ones one seemed a bit smaller than the other and then a handful of females so maybe a half dozen or so hmm yeah, it's easy to, I mean, that's not, in some ways, that's not that far away. In other ways, if you don't have a boat, it might as well be Seattle, you know. It's, right. It's kind of one of those things. It's it's a, an interesting dichotomy that I experienced living here of of it. it is literally easier to get to Seattle than it is to get to some places that are only 30, 40 miles away from, from my house. And it is 
I, you know, I remember talking to some folks that had moved here in the late 40s and they used to, I think people used to fly into lakes a lot more often mm-hmm. and because it, it was so difficult to get south. It was so difficult to get outside. Relatively speaking, it was easier to take a float plane into Rezanoff Lake or whatever lake or, or go on a boat trip. And it was just kind of a different pace of life, I think, as well. And so it's interesting to observe in when I was young, I think it was the jet traffic had started so it was relatively easy but i think still kind of expensive and i suspect that the relative cost of going south has gotten lower over the years i'm not 100 percent sure about that but that's the feeling that it is it's just nobody thinks much of going to seattle <laughs> or anchorage for that matter uh and so exploring some of these closer to home places that are that it, there's a certain sort of novelty to it almost. It seems like there's these, this stuff that's going on out there, these, these killer whales that are, of course, what people are coming to Southeast Alaska to see in part mm-hmm. uh, when, they're, when we get our tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of visitors in, in more typical years. Uh, and, and I think I did see, I don't know if it was the same group, but there was a group that had moved along the shoreline here earlier this year uh, mm-hmm. that I happened to catch a little bit just off of Seamart. Uh, you know, one of the, <laughs> the grocery store parking lot happens to be one of the better places to watch wildlife sometimes. And uh, it it looked like they had, I didn't quite understand what was going on at the time. They had been out further towards Halibut Point Rec and Sandy Beach. And and when I was at Seamart, uh, I'd heard about them. I went out and, um, and then pulled into Seamart. And actually, I think I went out and, and then saw them and came back and they were headed in towards town. And they they did something. There's like this little swirl of activity just right along the shore at Pioneer mm-hmm. Park. And there was a sea otter that was there. And he sort of popped up and was like, what's going on? You know, didn't looked a little freaked out. In my pictures, I noticed there was actually a seal, uh, seal head sticking up. So I suspect what happened is that they made a attempt at the seal. And the seal maybe was just in too shallow of water for him to get to. That's my guess. And then they... And then they trucked on, and I, I kept watching, and they just like were gone. And later, I saw on the internet somebody had posted uh, pictures of them going in towards the channel. So they had swum underwater deep enough, uh, far enough that I I just missed them. But it's just a you know those brief moments. So it's kind of cool that you get a chance to watch them over a, sounds like a fairly long period of time just doing their thing. Yeah, a couple hours. It was really pretty neat. Yeah, and so so Baby Bear Bay, if that's that's uh, north of town a little bit, I guess. And is that a place that you've been to many times? I've yeah, heard about it, but I don't really know about uh, it. Yeah, it's just barely the other side of Surges Narrow, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty common stop. I think uh, it's a part, a marine park. Is that there's I think something it is a state part park. of the yeah? Yeah, and there's some really cool old cedar uh, on that island that facing south, all gnarled, and uh, a few of them have fallen over. Interesting uh, eagle and other perhaps raptor perches um, on some of those. Like if you mm. climb up a little ways, you can see they're just sitting there. My kids have a fondness for finding those spots and going and sitting where an eagle might eat a fish or a bird or, you know, something like that. Like climbing up the tree or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're just kind of these low perches. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been p- seeing more of those. Uh, sometimes my son will see them with a drone. Um, there was one over in Lizovskaya that fell over that was pretty neat. That was last spring. Uh, you could see where generations of raptors had just leveled out this uh, hemlock on top, and it was all mossy, uh, but the branches were um, bare where birds had just been sitting. And I remember seeing 
eagles and I think uh, a hawk or two over there. There's definitely uh, a nesting pair or has been in previous years hmm. on the other side. Do you see the talon marks in the branches or no, I don't know how much they tell. actually grip with their pads versus their talons. Um, yeah, I have seen that a little on yellow cedar sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one right in front of our house that occasionally they'll hang out, but you can just tell where the branches have had enough. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of looks like where uh, a mink or something might be hanging out on the rock, but you know, 20 feet up. Right. Well, it's interesting. There's a tree that somebody pointed out to me at, um, like Path of Hope, really kind of the upper end of um, Swan Lake, and had mentioned that, well, there's like there's often an eagle or a goshawk or a sharpshin hawk. There's just a bear, upper, up, very upper part of a tree mm. that's bare, and it seems that they like to sit there. And I'd never really, I mean, I know that there's trees that often have birds in them, but I never really thought about there being this like favored perch. I mean, it makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, but for whatever reason, it just never really crossed my mind that way. So, it was interesting to note that one. And now, I can you can actually see it from Lake Street and from like as you're going past the stoplight at uh, Muller Park, you can see it. So when I drive by now, I always look and see if there's a bird in it. Mostly, I haven't seen birds in it. I've seen eagles a couple times, and I went and looked when somebody told me there was there was a bird in it. But uh, it is it is interesting to know that. you know, you, you can notice those things and then sort of specifically look there. And it was multiple species. Like it was all the raptors. It wasn't just eagles. Of course, mostly around here it's eagles. But uh, so it's interesting that you're you're finding those and your kids are into um, looking at them specifically. And, and uh, so they do they climb up and like kind of perch in the tree? Yeah, yeah. Like especially these ones that hang over the water. It seems mm-hmm. like cedar have a special ability to do that. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, just a handful of times. I, yeah. I don't want to over-exaggerate here. Well, I mean, that's more times than I've noticed, so <laughs> I'll have to keep my eye out for them. Um, and there's, yeah, I'd actually heard, I remember talking to Paul Hennon once, and he said one of the biggest cedars he'd ever seen, I think, was not there, but kind of in that area, maybe on the Chichikov side, on one of the ridges, uh, they were out doing something, and it was just a really massive cedar. Mm. And, yeah, cedars are interesting trees. So, you know, they it took me a long time to realize when I was seeing a young cedar because they don't look like cedars that I'm used to. They're little spiky right. things, you know. Right. Uh, and once I started to understand what they look like, now I see them. I mean, I've seen them regenerate. There's young ce- uh, seedling, sapling cedars along uh, the Halibut Point Road, uh, not Halibut Point, Summer Creek Road out by Silver Bay that are coming up mm-hmm. in the gravel and along the cliffs and stuff. And And they have such different forms. You know, sometimes they're just it's almost like they're different species. They're just growing as shrubs. And you're just like, well, that just looks like a shrub. Uh, but I, it's all the same, I think, is this big, tall, you know, some of them get pretty large. I don't know what the largest, maybe the largest one I saw was up a uh, blue lake and is dead now. It, it was part of the flood zone. So mm. still standing. It may end up being one of the last standing trees up there, I suppose, uh, given how long that they last. But yeah, so you've been doing some work with yellow cedars this year, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. A uh, few bench commissions, uh, including the one for Richard Nelson at Thimbleberry. That was a fun project and really neat to see some of these older trees. Uh, I think that one had been dead, oh, well over 50, if not pushing 100 years. The sapwood was at the point where it was just barely hanging on in a few places. Um, so about a 700 year old tree would be a guess. So uh, 
so 700 and then 100 years of standing dead. So probably yeah. started 800 years ago or so. Somewhere in there. Yeah, we were thinking, uh, you know, 1300 or before it was uh, a seedling. Hmm. Sobering. Yeah. Think about it. Well, and it's, it's also interesting because I don't think cedars are super competitive in terms of light like they need light to start with Mm -hmm. hemlocks will be growing in the understory and just waiting Mm -hmm. spruces aren't so competitive uh, for light it doesn't seem like either but so it makes me wonder like what was going on there that allowed it to get started at the time because i I mean i guess i don't know what it was like was it was it in an otherwise pretty forested area or was it kind of it was in kind of an open north-facing spot um but I think there's been a lot of wind there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest cedars I've seen in this area looks like it probably blew over 200 years ago. I, I don't. I I would say at the butt it was probably seven feet, mm. something like that. But it all shattered, and um, I could barely even tell it was a cedar anymore. Mm. But uh, so I I suspect that the windy ridge up there maybe opened things up. That'd be my best guess. It is. Interesting, as I've learned to distinguish, looking at, especially on a sunny day, the different shades of green on Mm -hmm. the mountain slopes, and the cedars are a different color than the spruces and and the Mm -hmm. hemlocks, and you pretty much know those are what you're looking at. It's one of those three up there. And that the cedars tend to, there seems like there's a kind of a mid elevation band often of cedars, Mm -hmm. and you know, I've, I know going up Bear Mountain, there's a couple places where I've seen, oh, there's like a stand of cedars where it's almost mostly cedar and not necessarily very big cedars in that in that sort of circumstance but but quite a few of them that seem to be pretty happy and i guess i don't really know how fast cedars grow i know spruces can grow incredibly fast and i was just reading about them for some reason recently and they're saying yeah folks tend to think that the biggest spruces are the oldest spruces but that's rarely the case as it turns out because the biggest spruces are often growing in places they're very happy and they can are capable of going very quickly i think i was reading about how spruces are one they're maybe the fifth largest conifer tree in the Mm. world um they're not there's another uh, douglas firs get taller i guess but not bulkier um and the spruce can have so much bulk uh and but the um the coastal redwood and the giant sequoia and then there's one in uh, new zealand that's mass a massive conifer as well but yeah the sicca spruces are um can get very large uh, and grow pretty fast but i don't know if that's true for cedars either you know like you i guess you get a chance to investigate them a little more closely as you're cutting through them and uh being able to see the rings because not every tree holds its rings very well once it's dead but these seem to stand up pretty well so um are you noticing many patterns around like how big they are and how old they are yeah i think in particular areas uh for sure so that 700 plus year old tree was north facing so incredibly tight growth rings uh i had to take a little cookie home sand it after it had dried out and then uh, give a friend a field microscope just to count Mm. the rings that's how tight the growth rings were but then there was another cedar that came down in November on Galankin Island on private property. And the owners gave me permission to uh, make a bench from that. And that tree, I think, was only 124 years old. And it was over two feet in diameter at the butt. So uh, 
we were talking before the show, likely there was some Russian, uh, at least selective cutting out there. So a cedar in good light, good soil can grow really, really fast. But that was one of the fastest growing ones I'd ever seen. But the interesting thing about that tree is it had grown to a height of almost 100 feet very rapidly. But then the last, uh, I would guess, 20 or 30 years, it had put on the brakes, slowed way down, and the grain started uh, alternating, uh, going a little bit on the diagonal, like clockwise, counterclockwise, back and forth. And uh, that grain tends to be incredibly, incredibly strong. Uh, and it's beautiful too, particularly in a cross section when you're looking at the end grain. So uh, you will likely see that bench uh, hopefully downtown in oh, the coming months. Nice, yeah. Is this? I think it's the same tree. I had Kitty Labounty on as a guest, and and she had pictures, and we were talking a little mm-hmm. bit about this, for lack of a better, better term, bubble bubble grain kind of thing that's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so that's uh, that is adding structure uh strength to the to it i mean mm-hmm. obviously not sufficient well i guess it, it came over from the roots not the trunk but um if i if i remember correctly so i guess the trunk was plenty strong enough but um but yeah i suppose it's ex- out there on the island it's kind of exposed to right. s- stronger winds and um so that but that alternating kind of gives it a stronger uh, a stronger uh trunk to to withstand the that sort of thing i sure think so i mean i'm I'm not a yellow cedar expert. Uh, I have talked to a couple people who uh, have some expertise there, and they they say, yeah, more than likely. Uh, but, you know, I've thought about it uh, almost like how uh, a boat builder might lay up fiberglass. Uh, you wouldn't run all of the cloth in the same direction. And so I've seen it in spruce as well, particularly in windy places. So I think that that alternating grain uh, is just incredibly strong. And I've even taken uh, some small pieces and just tried splitting them, and they seem uh, less prone to splitting. And then as I'm working the wood, uh, either with power tools or with hand tools, the grain just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, honestly, it's it can be a bit of uh, <laughs> a lot of extra work that way uh, because wood likes to be cut downhill. Um, you know, kind of if you just think about a pencil, you would always cut from the top toward the center, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, people use the analogy of cutting a stack of straws. So you would want to cut downhill. And uh, yeah, the grain just keeps going back and forth. So I suspect that it's a bit of an intelligence in the tree. And uh, boy, I, I wish that tree could have made it for another few hundred years and then. I could have had x-ray vision or (laughs) been around to mill it at that point. So I'm hoping at some point in my career to find a similar tree a few hundred years older. Yeah. Uh, And and I only salvage dead or down trees. Uh, But with luck, I will find something similar to that bubble grain uh, that's then lived for another few centuries. Have you you seen that before? Or is that... I have in cedar, um, and it, I've red cedar tends to do that, uh, mm-hmm. but red cedar likes to buttress a lot too. Um, I grew up in the Ketchikan area, and where red cedar's common and uh, native, done some milling, seen that a fair bit. Uh, but then spruce too, definitely toward the butt, uh, and I think 
this is one of the reasons that most people, when they cut a tree for firewood, they leave the stump there. I think there's also just, you know, that's how it's normally done. So people just think, oh, I just leave the stump there. But that wood tends to be dense and really hard to split, often wetter as well. But it, the density, if you're patient for allowing it to dry, it's actually the best firewood. Hmm. Just a little harder to to get into firewood sized chunks, of this, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, I mean, I don't know if you've been turning bowls lately or not, but I know in previous previous times we've talked about your sort of wood turning in, in the bowls. And it, if I'm remembering correctly, that was actually one of the things that you like to get was mm-hmm. those kind of the lower parts of the trees. Often so. Yeah. I, I ended up giving a, a spruce bowl to a friend uh, that was turned out of that same stock. And it was probably twice as dense as the usual spruce. Um, it feels like a piece of hemlock. Uh, and it's just heavy, dense. Uh, and then sometimes, I don't really know this for a fact, but uh, talking with other woodworkers, uh, particularly a shipwright friend um, who talks about Doug fir having more oils. And so sometimes I think the pitch, particularly in... Uh, spruce but i have seen it in hemlock a little too that can add some density Hmm. so i guess i mean i'm certainly no materials uh scientist or or wood expert of any (laughs) sort Uh, but my understanding is that spruce is pretty light and strong it has a high strength to rate rate strength to weight ratio maybe one of the highest i don't know yeah, um, definitely. And that's why it was used in like the uh, Wright brothers' first airplane. They were using spruce, and they were using it in World War II. Uh, I don't know if it's the same strength to weight thing that that is impacting its uh, desirability for musical instruments. But my understanding is that musical instruments are also Sitka spruces uh, mm-hmm. for the resonance boards, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hemlock, I don't know really so much about the qualities of hemlock except i don't hear about it being used sounds like it's heavier i don't know Much. if it's not as strong either yeah i think it, it can depend i think it's about 30 percent heavier mm. when, i mean in dried weight yeah yeah so substantially so but the structure of it is such that it doesn't have the strength of it's interesting to me how it's like at some level it's all just wood right but no <laughs> it turns out that it matters how it's all put together on the inside uh and and there's I think there's a couple of different ways that, you know, a person can approach understanding that one of is just working with it and, and working with others who've worked with it over generations really to understand the sort of material qualities and what it's good for. You know, you want to use it for this part of the boat or you want to use it for this part of the house or whatever you're building. And then there's sort of the material science side of it, which is getting in and looking at the actual physical structure and the way that it grows. And to me, I mean, there's an interest in, in both aspects of that, uh, just trying to understand. And it's kind of different perspectives looking at the same sort of, um, mm-hmm. the same tree, really, but just different different perspectives on that. And then coming to understand, just as you've shared before, about the, the different parts of the tree and, and the story that that tree, basically the story of that tree and the way that that is stored, essentially, in the wood at some level. Um, and, and kind of being able to, so this, this cedar tree on Galankin Island that grew pretty fast from the sounds of it. So it's 125 years old. That puts it at like 1895, something, something in that vicinity. So actually post-Russian era, um, it's sprouting, which is, it's interesting that I'm realizing that's, that's making my mind be a little funny because 
it's so easy to, like, I know trees grow, but there's also this sense of staticness that their lifetime is so much longer than mine that a big tree has just been there forever and mm-hmm. will be there. I know intellectually that's not how it works. But from my experience of my relatively short life, there's this sense of staticness, even though I know it's constantly changing. So it's funny to think about a tree that large. 1895 is post-Russians. It's like it's a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And that tree wasn't there. Something else was there. I don't, I don't know what was there. Um, but it is, it is kind of interesting. So it grew, you said, 100 feet tall. Mm-hmm. But So were you looking at it in sections and you could tell how old each section was? Is that kind of how you're telling how, this how was, fast it was growing? This or? was uh, counting right at the butt. Mm-hmm. right at the stump where uh, where we ended up having to cut the tree. No, I, I was wondering, because you, you mentioned that it, it was growing pretty fast for a while, oh, and, then it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then it stopped. Is that from oh. looking at the rings up higher? or um, No, this was more looking at from the center or the heart of the tree mm-hmm. to the outside. And how can you tell then when it kind of stops growing up and starts oh, doing I other wasn't, things? I wasn't suggesting so much uh, that it was slowing um at at the upper extreme, although my guess is it probably was because yeah. it seems like trees kind of reach a height where, you know, no usually a tree doesn't want to be an outlier and be 30 feet taller right. than the ones yeah. around it. <laughs> but it seemed like it, uh, I, I'm thinking in particular, though, just about the growth, um, you mm. know, in the lower 30 feet oh, okay. of the tree. Yeah, and the way and the pattern of growth mm-hmm. there. And so that's growing that that relatively tall and fast in 125 years, and, and it pulls over from the roots and and so that's what kind of was the end of that one it would have otherwise had a long long life mm-hmm. ahead of it presumably um so yeah it's interesting to just think about like what what was it like there when it got started and mm-hmm. and of course i've been on glink and then it's a lot of it is pretty second growthy like, mm-hmm. you know definitely second growthy looking kind of older a lot of understory not everywhere but but a lot of places have understory and stuff so it's kind of opened up kind of like not unlike the the lower slopes of verstovia you know where you go there and right when I was a kid, you know, 40 years ago at this point, I remember seeing Wolf Drive was cut in there. And so you could just see the, the trees. And I'm like, what? It, even at the time, it stood out to me as those are skinny trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I didn't know about the logging and second growth and that kind of stuff. But they definitely stood out as just a lot of skinny poles there. And that's starting to take on a little more old growth character there, I think, now as you're getting trees that are falling down. And I don't know. I don't know, like when you start to get the big diameter trees, if those narrow, skinny trees can eventually fill out before they break, or if, if that's something that they'll just be replaced in patches. And so the, there'll be an opportunity for trees to grow up a little bigger as they come up in those patches. But just kind of thinking about the story of the land over, over those timescales, you know, and a 700 year old tree dead for 100 years. So, you know. How much, how much life is that seen, you know, go by mm-hmm. the seasons, the, the mini ice age and, and all of those things. It's kind of, it's interesting to think about. Definitely. Just sort of, yeah, wonder. I've, I've long wanted to see, uh, you know, some sort of animation of even, even sort of a longer history of going back the ice ages and like what we know of the ice coming out and going back and what did Sitka proper look like you know indian river valley essentially and blue lake and and those places where silver bay where the glaciers did at some point come out and and then retreat and i don't know you know i don't know how easy it would be to to figure that out i suspect if you could figure out the stuff it'd be relatively straightforward to model it from a computer graphics standpoint for somebody that knew what they were doing um, but it would be interesting to kind of just have that sense of wow this was under you know 
thousand feet of ice or, or whatever, um, 15,000 years ago. And those trees all came back. Um, and some of those, yeah, some of those are pretty old. The, um, well, there's a, a tree in the park that uh, fell over last fall sometime. And I was impressed looking at it as a spruce tree. It's one of the few old spruce trees or big spruce trees in the park. You know, it seems like those are coming down in recent years, I guess. I don't know why they weren't cut when the Russians cut or whoever cut. Um, I assume the Russians probably did, but maybe not entirely. Um, but for whatever reason, it wasn't cut and it was there. And it didn't really look rotten on the inside when it was standing. Um, but. I had seen like uh, polypores uh, growing on it. So, I mean, I knew in principle that it was, had rot in it. Uh, the tree was still alive. And when it fell over, uh, looking at it, I was surprised at how thin the actual solid wood layer was. Um, and the place that I kind of measured it was like three and a half inches thick. And it, that may not evolve. Some of that was bark, you know, uh, so that wasn't having any structure as best I can tell most of the tree was of a similar thickness so it was just this three inch shell and I don't know I'm guessing it was like four foot in diameter or something like that I didn't measure it but it was kind of astounding to me and then it had all the tree above that so this is relatively low down and you have all the tree above that and somehow it's still standing there for quite a while uh, mm -hmm. you, you know I guess I don't know how fast it rots either I suppose it's possible that that all rotted in the last few years and so it really hasn't been that long. But um, yeah, you're not going to get an age on that one. Uh, it was all just, you know, <laughs> punky brown wood in the, in the inside. But it was, it was really remarkable to me how, how to, to think about how strong that wood must be. And I know that, like, if you press down on a straw, it's hard to break. But it doesn't take much sideways pressure to, to buckle a straw. And mm -hmm. so... That's not the windiest place there is, but it's windy enough. And ultimately, the wind, I think, is what knocked it over. But uh, it was kind of, yeah, incredible to me, that strength and resilience of, of that wood, uh, just the thin shell of that wood, really, to, to hold that tree up for so long. Do you see a lot of, of you know, those sorts of things? Yeah, I do. Um, and it's something I've really only started paying attention to uh, in detail in the last, like, five years or so. Uh, especially thanks to wood turning. But I, th I think that just to back up to that spruce, I feel like that is a good example of that uh, interlocking grain. Mm. Maybe not necessarily the bubble grain, but the stuff that uh, alternates. And, you know, trees, I definitely see where they, uh, where they compensate for stresses over decades and whatnot. Um, there was a hemlock that, uh, I think it's been three or four years ago, a complete hemlock that was drifting by uh, our house uh, in Thimbleberry Bay in a fall storm. And I went out uh, and I towed it back and it had a really similar uh, character where about three feet in diameter, maybe even a little more. Uh, and it was completely rotten on the inside to the point of being punk, kind of like that spruce um, with no visible rot at all on the outside uh, it was a healthy tree still had all its needles on it um, but the root system had rotted out and it was a, a leaning tree too which was pretty interesting a double stem so it had grown up and I think that uh, probably close to the water since the whole tree was in the water um, and at some point it had grown a second stem that was almost as big as the lower stem curved and I 
could only imagine the stresses that were on that tree and it survived and had done quite well hmm. all of that extra weight i mean all that rot in the middle just that alone that weight is just you know unthinkable and then all the stresses of leaning plus snow wind uh silver bay is no small <laughs> windy area right so uh just to think about that and uh that tree that grain was so incredibly dense and i, I suppose especially on the lower side uh, or was it on both it sides was, it was pretty even hmm. um and in places it was only an inch but that wow. that was like hundreds of years old and there were branches on that tree that were i think i think around 350 years wow but very very slow very very dense wood uh or slow growing uh, and I was able to turn some bowls out of some of the branches, which were pretty neat. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, just just an amazing tree. And I think that, you know, the other thing, I, I mean, one of the things I've learned from hemlock, uh, it, it's beautiful trim as a wood. And you'll often see dark uh, streaks through it. Um, and it seems like that often has some correlation to stresses. Uh, you see it especially around dwarf mistletoe. Um, which, you know, that's, that's a different kind of stress, but, uh, that tree had a lot of it, uh, when I was able to cut into the wood and it just dense as heck. I could take a piece of that and you know, the th stuff that ended up just being firewood and you could barely split it, you know, just a, a maximum swing with a heavy splitting ax and it would barely split. So a lot of it ended up getting cut with a chainsaw mm. to firewood size. And then the, the rot was just split off and you know pretty much not too far off from soil wow amazing tree yeah yeah it seems like it there's i mean the 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 hemlock tree up indian river valley that is well for a while it was competing with the largest in the world mm -hmm. uh by the measurement standards which is which is a combination of uh the circumference mm -hmm. at breast height and the canopy spread and the height and so I think it's the, the circumference in inches plus the height in feet plus a quarter the maximum canopy spread in feet. Mm. Uh, those numbers, then you add them together. And so this tree scored out at something like 520 or somewhere in there. It was over 500. And the largest measured tree for like the American Foresters Association or whatever was, I think, 530-something on Olympic Peninsula. So this one... You go up there, it's a big tree, but it's mm -hmm. not like, right? you know, it's not like a sequoia big or anything like that. Uh, but it was definitely big, and it's totally rotted out inside. I've climbed up in it and, and shined a light up in it and couldn't see the top of the hollow. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the top blew out of it a few years ago. It still seems to be alive, uh, but the top blew out of it, so it's not nearly as tall as it was. And I climbed up in there since then and still couldn't see the top of it. So wherever the top is, it's between where it broke and... and um, and at some point, it wouldn't surprise me if it, and maybe even by now, it's been a little while since I've climbed up in it, but that the, because presumably it was rotten where, where it broke. Um, but there's massive side branch that comes off of that, that that's, I don't know, mm -hmm. probably a foot or more in diameter and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, yet the inside is like, it, it's big enough that you kind of, I don't know if you ever read My Side of the Mountain, you know, um, it was, a, it's a book takes place in the east but but the kid goes to live in the woods and and one of the things he he makes a place for himself by 
a rotted out tree, like he just he just cleans out the tree and the inside and and sets up basically a little place for him to live and that tree is big enough that you could you could kind of do that with um you'd have you'd have a lot of shoveling of the <laughs> of just the the stuff that's fallen down and accumulated it's probably i mean it's over my head so it's six seven eight feet deep of this of i don't know if it's all just the the i assume that it's just all the rotted wood mm-hmm. wood chunks and that had fallen from above but yeah just a very lo- still large tree I have of course no idea how old it is but i'm guessing it's it's quite old uh, there's some large spruces up there as well, but spruces tend to grow larger than hemlocks in general, so um, so they don't they don't stand out as much. But yeah, just kind of kind of interesting. There was another a pine tree and a muskeg that somebody had you know people I guess decide to shoot trees for target practice or something. I don't know what's going on, but it was shot enough that it actually fell over where it was had been shot through. It basically weakened enough and it fell over. But I was curious because it was pretty good. It was like a foot and a half in diameter or something. Uh, which is large for a pine here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was curious how old it was. And the the grain was so tight, it was it was difficult. One of the branches that was maybe five feet off the ground, I think, was almost 200 years or 200 growth rings. And I think it was, I think if I remember correctly, as best I could count, it was like into the 1700s um, mm-hmm. that this was. And, and that tree, I'm not sure, because muskegs grow taller over, I mean, they grow thicker over time. So I'm not sure how the trees do that you know because as the as the muskeg grows up around a tree um like is their trunk down below <laughs> i need to talk to somebody that excavates some muskegs I'm, maybe i should ask the trail works folks that have been excavating out out here for the putting in the trail um to to star gavin but um yeah I'm, that's something i've been curious about is their tree below is their trunk below the surface of the muskeg where the muskeg is essentially grown around it and so maybe it was even older, but I, I don't know. In any case, it was very tight grain, um, not quite microscope needing to, to count it, but um, but it was definitely like magnifying glass was helpful and definitely sanding it down. Um, and yeah, it's just the different. It, it wasn't rotten at all in the middle, though. Uh, it was it was totally solid all the way through, um, and would have no doubt stood for a while but that's uh, speaking of the pines you were mentioning so the alternating i've seen the the spiral mm-hmm. like when the bark is shed off a dead pine tree or spruce mm-hmm. tree as well but i especially know some pines there's a real obvious spiral to the um mm-hmm. to that and i was reading about that that they can actually s- change the directions of the spiral is that mm-hmm. what you were talking about the alternating grain yep and i don't know how they do that exactly i mean it seems it seems sort of strange to me that they can but Obviously, they figured it out. <laughs> I don't need to know how in order for them to do it. Um, so that that is kind of that. That's where you get kind of uh, counter counter uh, counter turning um, uh, spring is the word that's coming to mind, but it's not quite the right coils. Right. Basically, right. Um, that would then uh, offer. And so you when when you see that, you notice it, especially in windy windy uh, subject it does seem trees. Yeah, windy, or I think trees that sometimes are in softer soils that maybe their uh, center of gravity has shifted. So uh, maybe they've put a lot of branches on one side, so they weigh a lot more on that mm. side, and then uh, and then they'll just uh, counteract in their growth. Have you worked with the trees that, I guess some of them happens when the snow slides and they get pushed, but the trees that have the kind of the oh yeah, the I, little I J shaped roots. Yeah, I have a little. 
um, that's pretty interesting stuff. And um, I've, I've done a couple of, uh, you seem to find those uh, both yellow and red cedar on the beaches. I mean, mm. obviously the red cedar is from quite a distance, but I think that usually indicates uh, moving soil uh, or shifting. Uh, I, I'm not a hydrologist, so I don't quite know what the words are, but I think we all know what we're talking about there. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that they were looking for as evidence of slopes that could mm-hmm. could fail right. uh, when they were talking about landslides. And right. I, I guess I've heard that it can also happen as a result of snow. Right, I think that's true too. You see that in Sitka alder a lot, like when they when they're laying where the, down. Yeah, where there's there's snow mm-hmm. that'll push it and then slide down and kind of create mm-hmm. that. Then they're they're bending up. The one that that is mysterious to me. Maybe we've talked about it before, but if so, I I, I can't really remember if we came to any conclusions. Uh, are the large trees that have big bows in them and Mm -hmm. then they go back to straight again like Mm -hmm. vertical Mm -hmm. and there's one in particular along herring cove trail just past the falls Mm -hmm. or the falls viewpoint there and it's just this it's almost like a giant it's just Mm -hmm. this growing there for the giant to have a bow you know Mm -hmm. kind of thing and i just it i don't quite understand how a tree already having all its uh, the only way I can figure that it grows is at some point that way is at some point it got tipped after it was sizable because otherwise mm-hmm. it was just growing straight. And then somehow like straightened, it, it, it went back and then and then goes back to vertical. So it's it's still kind of balanced over its, its I mean, I haven't actually measured it, so I don't know if it is, but it's kind of what it looks like it's doing. It has this, this broad bow in it. Um, how How it manages to... I guess I guess maybe if it just grew more on the outside and and just that slow steady pressure that the wood has enough flex in it essentially uh, and strength that it's essentially well like if you were going to steam steam oak for for your um, kayak uh, ribs mm-hmm. you know or you just kind of slowly bend them that maybe the tree can do that to itself somehow which I've never really thought about it that way but mm-hmm. maybe that's what it's doing in which case wow because um, that's a big that's a big trunk mm-hmm. that it's kind of re reshaping. Um, but is that, you know, I mean, you know, the tree I'm talking about and I've seen others like it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any sense of, or maybe you've actually been able to work with one? I don't know, but um, yeah, what's going on there? I mean, I, I've only been at the guessing mm-hmm. stage myself and I've imagined that maybe the tree can uh, do a little of that straightening. Um, one thing I've noticed about, those sorts of trees, and I think that's true with that tree on the Herring Cove Trail, is that they tend to go a little bit past center. Mm. Um, Which I guess then, would make sense to, for balance. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, if you look at it, it doesn't just lean over and then assume vertical right. and then go straight. It goes past. And I mean, this gets into some, you know, an, another deep subject, which we can avoid. But um, I've been looking at, uh, you know, early design like pre-medieval and uh greek and whatnot and and if you look at proportions um that are found in nature and then found often in uh in earlier architecture earlier european architecture at least uh you'll you'll see these proportions and so i've kind of been paying attention to them and noticing um that they seem to kind of have a particular proportion to them Hmm. um and I, I haven't actually taken a photo and stepped it off to say like, oh, this is a three to seven or whatever, but uh, but there just seems to be something there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I would love to find out if somebody knows. Um, 
man, track me down, track Matt down. Yeah. Let us know. Because <laughs> there's a tree on our trail. Uh, we, we live down a trail and it's clearly a spruce that as it, you know, when it was probably, you know, under 50 years old, uh, it was on a root wad that fell over mm. and it's really looks like it must've turned, um, to assume the vertical, uh, like it looks like it had to have straightened itself up, but I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was still just a sapling at that point and it was able to grow vertical, um, as it was growing, you know, just as a leader. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. I, I suppose it's possible that if it's young enough and it's it's tilted and it's trying to grow straight, mm-hmm. that that's just a natural consequence of, of that growth mm-hmm. and the way that it puts down wood. Uh, I don't know. It would be interesting to know. And I guess I guess with a drone, maybe you could get a pretty good... Because one of the things I've tried to take pictures of that tree up Herring Cove, mm-hmm. and the problem in part is your perspective is that you're right. at the ground and you're looking up. And so... But with a drone, I guess you could just go vertically straight vertically and kind of take a series of pictures going up which you could then uh you know maybe somehow stitch together in some way that would allow you to to have a a sort of truer understanding of of the actual shape and form of that um but yeah it would be it would be interesting i suppose somebody out there probably who is into modeling tree growth or whatever would be able to uh would be able to say, well, you know, if it lays down more wood on this side, and then this is sort mm-hmm. of the natural consequence of that over time, based on how these trees trees put put wood out there in response to stresses, and and um, I guess probably the light is driving hormones and stuff in terms of how it's deploying its growth. So, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, no end of fascinating, I guess, with the with the trees out there and and Definitely. what they're doing. And you see some of those old alders, you know, I don't know. I think down south they don't expect alders to live more than 100 years, but I think up here it's not unusual for them to be older than that. Mm-hmm. And you see in some places where it's, I mean, they're they're kind of surrounded by big trees, and you know they don't get started there when there are big trees. So, like, well, they're still hanging on. I wonder how old how old those alders are, you know, that, that are in there. And um, especially in some of the valleys, you can say, okay, well, probably came in, it's along a river kind of tributary or whatever. It probably came in when there's some sort of blowdown or something, mm-hmm. but there's no evidence of the blowdown anymore that, you know, obvious to me anyway. And, and there's, you know, I guess the spruces and the hemlocks can grow pretty fast, but, but still, it, it still takes time to build a, a two, three foot, four foot diameter spruce or hemlock, even if they are mm-hmm. growing fast. And for those alders to still be kind of hanging out there and, and and just getting by, and usually they're just loaded down with epiphytes, you know, mosses and ferns right. and stuff. So uh, it is is kind of uh, yeah, just interesting to notice the different. I suppose really each tree is unique, you know, and um, they all have their their story of of the time that they've they've been there. But uh, it 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 can be easy to you know miss the trees for the forest, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just like oh, it's just all these trees. Uh, so that's one of the things that's fun to talk to you about is, is, you know, I know that you've spent a lot of time attending to the details of very particular trees, you know, like there's the forest out there, it's, it's nice and it's lovely, but many of us, most of us probably just walk through it and it's like, yeah, there's trees. And, you know, some of us can say, oh, well, it's this kind of tree or that kind of tree. Mm-hmm. But then to, to actually say, no, but what about this particular tree is, is kind of interesting. And some of them stand out like those bow trees, you know, mm-hmm. um, or the old, the really big trees. But uh, it is kind of fun to think about uh, the ways and the different 
things that affect them and, and kind of what's going on. Um, do you have any sort of projects you're looking forward to doing? It sounds like you're, you're working on these benches. If people are interested in seeing them, the one at uh, Thimbleberry is already mm-hmm. up, and that's a memorial bench for Richard Nelson. Mm-hmm. There should be another bench uh, on the Thimbleberry Trail. I already made it last fall out of that same tree, but uh, that will be going up at Thimbleberry sometime spring or summer. Uh, by the by, the lower end of the lake or, or along? Yeah, we're not exactly sure, but uh, probably just um, just a little above the bridge. There was oh, okay. a small bench um, just barely past the bridge, and we're right, looking at yeah. just a little tiny bit further up, which that would put it about halfway between the parking lot and Nels's bench. Mm-hmm. Um, the Raptor Center is getting a bench that I'm installing on Thursday in two oh, days. so soon. And that has a... By the time this airs, yeah. it will be there. Uh, so people want to get up there. There's something pretty special that uh, I, I'm not quite at liberty to say about that. Uh, collaboration with another artist. but uh, Something to, to look that. forward to. And uh, yeah, another bench uh, that will likely be around Centennial Hall. That's another one that uh, is pending city approval through various committees. Um, yeah, and I then the some... older one, I guess, along the cross trail that you'd done previously. Yeah, that's that's about three and a half years ago, right? For John Sherrod, uh, that tree came over from Eastern Channel. I, I milled that one in place as well. That was my first bench, um, but I think that the tree for Nels's bench is probably one of the most interesting trees I've ever worked with. Um, Mm. Just being an older cedar, but uh, if you walk up there and look, uh, you'll see that the bench is curved, uh, just following the natural curve of the tree. And what I surmised, and I could be wrong on this, but uh, I think if you just look at the back, you'll see that uh, when the tree was fairly young, like I'd say under 100 years old, um, that part of the tree... I think was up about um, 15 feet. My memory's a little fa- uh, foggy on this, but it looks like uh, the top of the tree was broken. Mm. Um, and so it formed a new leader. And that leader, of course, was curved as it was a branch that uh, went up. And, you know, there we are talking about uh, trees' abilities to straighten up and to go vertical. And then, you know, another 500 years or whatever of growth on top of that. So, uh, take a look at that bench and and just think about that because I that and then some uh, slabs either side of it made me think that that's probably what happened. Mm. And where this tree came from somewhere in that area? Yeah, it came from the backside of Heart Lake. Okay, so as you where the dock is in Heart Lake, like looking across the lake, it was yeah. over there. Yeah. So yeah, I know there are a lot of sort of interesting cedars along trails, older cedars, and and it's not unusual to find markings or whatever on them mm-hmm. for whether folks had harvested bark from them or mm-hmm. I don't know, just blazed them or I don't know what mm-hmm. all they might've been doing to cho- why they were chopping into them, but you see just like chop yeah. marks on them sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is, yeah, there's kind of a lot of stories and, and old stumps as well, you, you know, not necessarily, I don't, I don't always know what the stumps are from, but um, just wandering places in the woods and like, well, there's a stump here. <laughs> I wonder, mm-hmm. and clearly it was cut, you know, um, I noticed some of that actually when I was doing some survey work for the Catlian Road sure. um, a couple summers ago now. We're just up on the, on the hillside and there was a stump 
And it's like sometimes trees break pretty clean, especially after they've had a chance to rot. You know, the, the stuff that sticks up falls off faster. And then the top of this was covered with moss. But this seemed awfully flat. And there was no, and the other big clue was there was no log. Mm-hmm. And so it was, but this was probably 200 foot, foot up the, the hillside. And uh, yeah, I was talking to the folks I was with and they're like, oh yeah, read about Handlogger Jackson. I think that was the guy's name. <laughs> yeah. And spent his time out. And, and so he was probably one of many who mm-hmm. were out and they would just, you know, they spent their time out and about, I guess, and, and would go up hillsides and they would cut. I don't know if they did it in the winter mostly or, or when they did it, but they would cut uh, cut the trees on the hill slope. And then I don't know if they, maybe they branched them while they were up there and then and then just slide them down the hill to bring into town for, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess that's a very selective sort of cutting. It, it's interesting to think about the kind of world where that made sense to do, you know, as a living, like you could make a living doing that. Uh, I don't feel like that's the kind of world we live in right now. Um, so those little, those little windows into, wow, that was really different then. Uh, but of course they were probably living on, you know, 50 pounds of flour and, and, uh, and, and, you know, 20 pounds of sugar and coffee or whatever. And that was, and then catching the rest of their stuff Mm -hmm. for food, uh, sort of different, different kind of life. But, uh, yeah, lots of little things in the woods. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, folks can check out your benches or any other kind of, um, adventures or things you're looking forward to doing in in this year we've had a long kind of uh, persistent winter if you're into skiing i don't know if you are but I, i'm not so much but i've seen lots of tracks up on verstovia oh yeah <laughs> lots of lots of folks getting up there for the snow but forecast is turning turning to warmer and and no doubt we'll see some sunshine again soon um yeah trips you're looking forward to places places to explore oh i think just the greater sidka area i Ah, uh, that's yeah. We we like to get out on uh, on the boat or in the skiff. Um, I'd like to get back up to uh, the west coast of Chichigoff. It's mm. been a few years. That's some pretty magical area up there. Um, it's all fun for me. I I mean I it's it's always the the work life balance. Um, but yeah, I've got some fun projects. Uh, mostly with yellow cedar, it seems. Um, I'll be doing some more milling. Uh, but it's always fun to get out and leave the chainsaw behind and just look at trees, think about them. So when you're, yeah, I guess that, that I suppose that's some of those sort of wanderings or when you find, find these trees, this tree for Nels's bench, did you, if it was still standing, I suppose you could maybe see it in the distance. Is that? I didn't find that one. Oh, um, somebody else did. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, SCS got permission from the city for that. Mm. But uh, yeah, I definitely keep a bit of a mental inventory of all the different trees that have fallen and whatnot. And then uh, talk with the Forest Service, who's been really supportive about me salvaging Mm -hmm. a few trees here and there. Well, um, yeah, it's been nice to talk to you. Anything else you want to uh, mention here before we we wrap up? Oh, I think... uh, you know, just thinking about Nels and thinking about uh, where the bench went and that he used to uh, record birds there. Spring's coming and uh, we put access down to the water, uh, I think, which was well used for ice skating. But, oh, yeah, uh, I imagine. Yeah. But I'll, I'll definitely be heading up there and listening for the early migrating birds as the salmon berries are blooming. And I, I think it's just a special place to... Uh, think about Nels, but also to think about everything that he taught us. 
and uh, a lot of the wisdom from native people all over Alaska that he shared. So um, that's a pretty special spot and it, and it was fun. Um, well, maybe I should use a different word than fun. It, it was fun, but it was also just uh, really rewarding and satisfying uh, for that project. And just getting to know some of Nels's friends who I didn't know as well and you know just seeing what uh, what a legacy he's left for us and that his work continues and the forest is still here and I think about that myself having uh, had a brush with death uh, several months ago <laughs> that uh, you know long after we're gone the forest will still be here and for me that's deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. Nice. So that bench is along Thimbleberry Lake Trail, mm-hmm. um, about midway up the lake. I haven't actually yeah. been been there yet. Uh, oh, 200 yards off yeah. on the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the place, and I, I've talked with, in the past, talked with Nels about recording there. It is an interesting, quiet pocket. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. water moving there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for whatever reason, the sounds from the road and stuff seem to just go over that area. I mean, you'll hear mm-hmm. planes going by yeah. from time to time, but it's a nice, quiet, quiet space. And a lot of uh, birds really like to use that uh, shrubby habitat where they keep Mm -hmm. the um, things cleared out for the power line corridor. Mm -hmm. So uh, that gives a different, yeah, we don't have a lot of shrub thicket habitat kind of here. Avalanche Mm -hmm. tracks along Blue Lake Road and then then the power line corridors essentially. And that, so that makes a nice place for warblers and the hummingbirds really like there. I think... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, expecting hummingbirds any any day. Maybe by the time this airs, I'm sure there'll have been hummingbirds show up. So uh, blueberries are starting to bloom, and and will no doubt be blooming. And salmonberries, like you say, and and mm-hmm. yeah, just a really great place. Actually, the last time I I saw him was up not far from that bench. Uh, mm. And the last time I think I talked to him on the phone after that once, but he had seen a um, herd and and then saw a Tennessee warbler up there in the summer, which is pretty unusual for here. So, uh, we occasionally get them in the fall. Um, but to have one here in the summer singing was was quite quite unusual, and uh, what I think he wasn't quite sure what it was. I don't remember now for sure, but uh, I went up there that one evening right. and and um, and uh, was able to see it briefly, and definitely heard it, and was like, "Yeah, it's a Tennessee warbler." And so it was just there's just a little bridge across a little side stream just just mm-hmm. past, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's where we that's where I ran into him. So. Uh, yeah, it's fun to fun to go up there and and reminisce. And so, if you're in Sitka, it's a great place to go, to go just spend some time, sit quietly. That's what the bench is for. Nice. Mm-hmm. There was kind of a rotted old uh, hunk of wood there. This one will probably last a lot longer, <laughs> <laughs> probably longer than me. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to having a chance to get up there. And so, yeah, thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Zach LaPerriere earlier in the month. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there, especially in this spring season. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.